Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude in over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. This episode is brought to you by our show sponsor, Organifi. If you're interested in hormonal health, I suggest you check out their Harmony Blend. It was specifically designed for PMS support to help balance out female hormones and to give you a little energy boost with the adaptogenic herbs that they use like Shatavari and maca. So it's a cacao and maca blend. I happen to love those two flavors together. So tasty. Uh, We also have ginger and turmeric added to the mix. So it's kind of like a spicy treat. Chase tree berries also featured, which is an herb that has been long shown to support female hormones. So I highly recommend that product. It's really tasty. You could also look into their gold powder, one of their best sellers. That's a turmeric ginger blend. Both are anti-inflammatory. And listen, menstruation, having a period is a naturally inflammatory process. And so if you're experiencing wonkiness during those times of the month, uh, it's not terribly uncommon, especially if you have underlying inflammatory stuff going on. It kind of just throws a little bit of gasoline on the fire. So doing anti-inflammatories during your period is a smart bet. Turmeric and ginger are two things that I highly recommend. Uh, This product, Gold, also has lemon balm and magnesium. Both of those are calming and soothing and can really, I mean, I drink it all the time, not just when I'm on my period, but it's a really good tool if you do have PMS symptoms. Both of these blends, the Harmony and the Gold, are great for post-meal sweet treats. You mix a little bit with either hot water. I personally like it with non-dairy milk. And uh, if you're somebody who has a sweet tooth, check them out. Head to Organifi.com forward slash funk. So that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash funk or use code funk to save you 20% on any of your orders. Hello, my friends. Before we dive into today's show, I wanted to give sort of an exciting update, at least for me, on the heels of last week's episode. So I recorded last week's episode a few weeks back, and since then I have been applying uh, lots of the techniques that Robert discussed in regards to cold exposure. I am really highly motivated to um, uh, take a mind over matter medicine approach to my Raynaud's because it has, this year was the worst that it's ever been. And it, as I said on last week's episode, it really has been 
causing a lot of uh, pain and discomfort and swelling. And I'm like, I gotta, gotta do something to help myself out. So I have been, the way that I've been doing it is really just um, ending my showers with anywhere between 10 to 30 seconds of cold water. And then um, letting myself, I'll take a shower with the window open in the bathroom and just letting myself come out into a colder environment. Normally I would never do that. I'm like rushing into the warmth and just trying to allow myself to be in the cold and then also say like, it's fine. It is safe for me to be in the cold and kind of do a little bit of coaching with myself. And, uh, what is so cool is that I have not in the past few weeks have not has, have had nearly as many Raynaud's attacks. And when it happens, they're very short lived. And I went to the doctors and they put a, uh, not for Raynaud's, something totally different. And they put one of those fingertip um, pulse oximeters, is that what they're called? The thing that they put right in your finger to get your pulse and your oxygen levels. And as soon as they did that, I'm like, oh, by the way, this never works on me. They can never get a reading because my fingertips are always so cold. I mean, I <laughs> I have even had to, one a nurse at urgent care a few years ago had me like, holding my fingers in the sink under hot water to try to warm them up, to try to get that thing to work. That thing never works on me. And just a couple of days ago, it worked like a dream. She's like, oh, no, it worked. You're at 100. And I was like, okay. So I think things are really improving. So I wanted to share that little that little tip with you, that little update, uh, because I know there are lots of folks out there who do struggle with Raynaud's syndrome, our phenomenon, and it's not comfortable. So let's get into the show. Um, Today is a bit of a town hall about food, our health, and the immune system, and our kids. And historically, I've sort of danced around the topic of child feeding because it's a very challenging topic that can elicit a lot of shame. And the last thing I want to do is contribute to um, more parent shame because mom shame is a real thing. And the last thing that we need is more of it. So I've always been very mindful. I've been a mother for seven years and I've always been very mindful about the way that I communicate and talk about food. And I always try to present things in a way that informs and inspires rather than make you feel like you're not doing enough because I can guarantee (laughs) you are doing the most. Um, And I will say that I'm more than happy to discuss my approach to kid feeding. I've sort of peppered it in over the the past few years um, here and there into the podcast. But if you have specific questions that you would like me to address, you can submit those through the contact form on the website, erinholthealth.com. and I'll, I'll do my best, but I'm also very sensitive to the fact that it's not as simple as overlaying what I do on top of your own family and the unique inner workings and dynamics of, of your family. One thing that I've been doing a lot over on Instagram is trying to take snapshots into how I prepare food and meals for my family. So I have a highlights called dinner inspo. I have a highlights called school lunch. There's a hashtag that I really haven't, my friend just reminded me about it. I haven't used it in a long time, but hashtag hashtag lunch, H-A-T-T-I-E, lunch. Um, I use it a lot more when my daughter was younger, but all of that is there and ripe for the picking if you're looking for ideas uh, and inspiration on how to feed your children. Um, I kind of want to focus on the task at hand today. Um, And what I have noticed 
that in the whole back to school battle between mask our kids and unmask our kids or vax our kids and don't vax our kids, we've completely lost the common ground, which is this. We want our children safe. All of us do. Every parent, every caretaker. We want our children healthy, right? I think we can all agree to that. And it is our job as parents and caretakers to protect them from harm. And what I'm going to propose in today's episode is what if one of the harms is the food that they're eating? Because I'm telling you what, based on the research and based on what we're seeing, it's looking like that is the case, as we'll discuss in today's show. And I'm not putting this out there from a fear-mongering perspective. I think we've all had our fair share of that (laughs) recently. Um, But more from an empowerment standpoint, as in we have more power than we think. And if we can just slow down, gather ourselves up, stop being overrun by overwhelm, and make a true commitment to this, we can really achieve the outcome that we're all after. And that's our health and our kids' health. And none of what I say is said with judgment. None of it. In fact, the complete opposite. I have so much compassion. I know it's not easy. This past year and a half, what should have happened is there should have been more of a spotlight on how to create robust immune systems. And I am not saying anything pro or anti-vaccines here. This is, this is just talking about the fact that we have immune systems and regardless of what choice we make, we still have to support our overall immune system. And we know that food informs the immune system. I've talked about this on previous episodes before. I, in an ideal world over the past year and a half, we should have all collectively recognized how much we need to value and prioritize health. And our long-term health should have made its way to the top of our priority list. But between working from home, homeschooling, losing jobs, or trying to do 12 jobs at once, switching gears, navigating the unprecedented times, navigating the unknown, navigating the constant pivots, I don't think that was able to happen. But what if we made space in our lives for that to happen now? Because it's not too late. And kid feeding isn't easy. I get that. And Eating a whole foods diet is not the status quo. And at this point, it actually feels pretty counter culture. The way that I eat and live, the ways that I, the way that I choose to, to feed my child, it feels counter culture. It is not the norm. And it feels like we're fighting an impossible war. But in this episode, what I'm trying to showcase is that it is a war worth fighting. So if you have any fight left in you, I encourage you to put it towards this. In dietetic school, we were taught that parents and caretakers are the nutritional gatekeepers of the home. That was the term. I'll never forget it. It sticks out my head always. And as a parent, I personally take that role quite seriously. 
And I understand that there's this, this philosophy of let them be kids. Um, you know, candy and sweets and treats, it's all part of being a kid. And I get that. But from where I'm standing and from what I see in my line of work and from my experiences, I have a bit of a different approach and a different opinion. And my approach is let me give her a fighting chance at a healthy immune system in a world designed to wreck it. So let me elaborate. Over the past 75 years, chronic illnesses have risen pretty much across the board. Cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, autoimmune disorders, cancer, liver disease, brain disorders like depression, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. Our healthcare services, the cost, has increased from 5% of gross domestic product in 1996 to 17.8% in 2019. That's $3.8 trillion, trillion with a T, trillion dollars. And this number is expected to rise. This is a big deal. I know that all of our current focus is on the current crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic. And even when we think about health, you know, our, our, our family's health, our, our health, Right now, it's really through the lens of how do I keep us from getting COVID? And I, I completely get that. Listen, I've got us all on vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, probiotics, glutathione in my house. I, I, we, I've got us loaded up. Um, side note, if you're looking for specific products, um, I'll link to my online dispensary. It's Fullscript is the one that we use, and um, you get 20% off of all of the, your purchases. This is not like a hard sell. This is not an upsell. It's just because when I, whenever I mention supplements, people are like, which ones and where do I get them? So that's a one-stop shop for you. You are more than welcome to peruse my Fullscript account and then go purchase elsewhere. Um, but I have an, a, an immune bundle, bundle. I have like, I think one is called Basic Immune and then one is Boosted. I'll make sure to get the, the, the appropriate information into the show notes. Thank you, Lauren. <laughs> but um, just, just so you know, you're not, um, you're not flying blind out there. But I mean, we're, I'm, I'm making sure that we're doing all the requisite things and I'm making sure that we're all in my household getting plenty of sleep, spending, spending plenty of time outdoors, not consuming much sugar, not consuming much booze. Listen, I'm not looking for trouble, right? So I'm not saying that we shouldn't be, you know, thinking about COVID. Please don't mis, misunderstand what I'm saying. But Back in 2018, there was a study that referred to metabolic syndrome as the new major health hazard of the modern world, metabolic syndrome. And I will link to the article. It's the global epidemic of the metabolic syndrome. Now, metabolic syndrome is something I've discussed a lot on the show, but just as a summary, metabolic syndrome is when you have three out of these five um, risk factors high blood sugar, so high fasting glucose. Um, this could be through hemoglobin A1C or fasting fasting glucose. I talk about that all the time. Super important information for you to have. Every time you go to the doctor, you should be getting your hemoglobin A1C or your uh, in your fasting glucose, ideally your fasting insulin as well, so you have a good handle on blood sugar. Um, low levels of HDL cholesterol, that's the good cholesterol, high levels of triglycerides, 
and a large waist circumference and high blood pressure. Okay, so those are the five things. If you have three or more out of the five, you are considered to have metabolic syndrome, which is really big deal. Metabolic syndrome affects the endocrine system. That's our hormones, the immune system. It's a risk factor for chronic illnesses of the heart, uh, cardiovascular disease, stroke of the liver, of the brain, like Alzheimer's. Uh, Dr. Emerin Mayer, he's an MD, uh, author of The Gut Immune Connection and another book that I really love. He says, it seems no organ can escape the impact impact of a dysregulated metabolic syndrome. If you've got metabolic syndrome, everything in your body is affected from top to tail. Now, the cost of healthcare for metabolic syndrome, so this includes prescription meds, surgeries, hospitals, says in 2016 was $555 For my fish fans out there, that's $555. I am not a fish fan, but I did marry into it, and so now all of the lyrics are forever embedded in my brain. This number is expected to exceed $1 trillion by 2035, and it's estimated that these these numbers will bankrupt our healthcare industry. So it's a big deal. Uh, Where it intersects with current events is that we know it is now pretty well established that metabolic syndrome, obesity, and type 2 diabetes increases the risk for severe COVID-19 morbidity and mortality. I mean, there is white paper upon white paper upon white paper to, to, um, to back all of that up. So we also know that the Western diet, the, the standard American diet, the diet chock full of processed foods plays a role in the development of metabolic syndrome. Hard stop. And that is a public health crisis in and of itself. And we know that when we take our diet and we put it on other countries, they, we, they, we see the same rise in illness, right, after they adopt the Western diet. So we know that it's diet. Um, a couple of more recent, um, some some more recent information and in, in, in uh, papers that came out. There's one called "Shelter from the Cytokine Storm," which I appreciate as a Dylan fan. Uh, it's called "Shelter from the Cytokine Storm." Healthy living is a vital preventative strategy in the COVID-19 era. And I will link to this in the show notes. And uh, just a snippet here. Through this review, we will demonstrate unhealthy lifestyle characteristics, chronic disease risk factors and diagnoses, and COVID-19 outcomes are intricately linked, creating a new global syndemic. And now, if you've never heard the term syndemic before, it's also referred to as a synergistic epidemic. It's the aggregation of two or more concurrent epidemics or disease clusters in a population. The article says, it is clear that a primary way to uncouple this syndemic is through increasing healthy living behaviors, as illustrated in this review. Moving forward, healthy living medicine should be practiced with renewed vigor to improve human resiliency to health threats posed by both chronic disease and viral infections. And the two big things they talk about in this article as interventions are eating well and moving your body, real basic stuff. 
Um, and I am just really thrilled to see more conversations like this happening because we know it's, it's, it's important. And you know, what I think is interesting is that anybody that is talking about this is immediately met with the whataboutism of, but there are people who are healthy, who are getting sick and dying from COVID-19. Absolutely. But we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We still have to pay attention to this information. We still have to do everything in our power to understand that the choices that we make every single day, the way that we sleep, the way that we move our bodies, what we, what we choose to eat, all of that impacts our overall health. It, it does. Um, there is another one, another uh, article. This is right from the CDC website that I will link to, which uh, the title is uh, longitudinal, longitudinal trends in body mass index before and during the COVID-19 pandemic among persons aged 2 to 19 years in the United States. So this is kiddos that we're looking at. The COVID-19 pandemic led to school closures, disrupted routines, increased stress, and less opportunity for physical activity and proper nutrition, leading to weight gain among children and adolescents. Um, this is a cohort of 432,302 people, so a big cohort. And there was essentially like a doubling of BMI um, in that age range, 2 to 19. And people who, ha- who, were, who had a pre-pandemic overweight or obesity and younger school-aged children experienced the largest increase. And so BMI is certainly not a perfect um, measure of health. I will fully admit that. But it is really quite interesting information, and I don't think it's something that we should turn a blind eye to. I think this is this is a big deal, knowing that this can contribute to overall COVID-19 outcomes. And so that that's just kind of a little bit of a staggering report, if, if you ask me. And the way that I <laughs> I was cleaning out my closet um, in my office this weekend, and I had this post-it of something that one of my mentors said, and I loved it, and I wrote it down on a post-it. And I saw the post-it on the, the closet floor and I was like, oh, I should save this. I'm like, no, Erin, you're trying to throw things out and get rid of stuff. You'll remember this. And of course, I don't remember the direct quote, but it was something like this. The more you practice this when you're not in crisis mode, the better you will be when you are in crisis mode. And she was referring to stress management practices. But I, I think that this can be used for pretty much anything. We, we can't wait till we're in crisis mode to do things for our health. Right? We have to be working on our health day in and day out. And then when we do hit crisis mode, we will be able to weather the storm better, essentially. Uh, there are certain things that I consider to be general non-negotiables for health. And, and they're like the foundation to your health house, essentially. Meaning that if you're not actively participating in them, then your health house is probably has some rickety foundation and it's really hard to build anything on that shoddy structure. Uh, it, it's kind of like saying, well, I'm just going to add collagen to my coffee every morning without moving your body or looking at your stress or getting getting eight hours of sleep or eating a whole foods diet. Chances are that that collagen isn't really going to do much for you. But unfortunately, we've all been groomed to believe that all we need is the quick and dirty, the magic bullet, the easy fix, but none of those actually exist. And Unfortunately, in modern day, it does take 
some effort and some practice in order to achieve or maintain health. I mean, we just have this, this environment you know, due to the the normalization of like toxic chemicals, like fragrances everywhere, right? Changes to our food system, highly processed diet, sort of being the status quo, sort of being the norm. We've normalized all of this and we've created this environment where it can feel more challenging to maintain health because of it. Uh, here's another quote from um, Dr. Emmerin Mayer. Industrial agriculture runs farms as factories with inputs such as pesticides, feed, fertilizer, and fuel, and outputs in the form of corn, soybeans, and meat. The primary objective of these corporations is to raise profit margins by rigorously decreasing production costs and increasing yields. While food has become cheaper and more abundant under this system, its quality has suffered, and the health of the public and the environment is the collateral damage. And chances are, if you're listening to the show, you'd probably agree with, with, with the fact that this system, this food system that we have is pretty bunk, right? And the, the problem as I see it, the more we participate in it, the more we perpetuate it. So we can all collectively say, yeah, this system sucks. And yet we're constantly feeding into it. We are overscheduled, we're busy bees, and we prioritize convenience over health. And when we prioritize convenience over health, hey, guess what happens? Our, our health suffers. Three quarters, this is from the book Hooked by Michael Moss, three quarters of the groceries we buy are considered processed, with most of them classified as highly processed. And they're so highly convenient that most of these groceries are ready to eat. 68% of what we buy in the grocery store is a ready-to-eat food. Yikes. So how do we say this is a broken system, but I still want my goldfish crackers and my Henny's mac and cheese, you know? Let's take a quick break to thank our show sponsor, BioCult. Their boosted product is a multi-strain probiotic four times the concentration of the original formula, which is why I prefer it. All of their probiotic strains are backed by clinical research. It really makes a great everyday probiotic. I just had somebody on Instagram reach out and say, this stuff has changed me. Thank you. So it's a great product. And the cool thing about it is that there's no need to refrigerate it. So you can take it with you when you're traveling, which I highly recommend because most of our guts get really jacked up when we're off our schedule, when we're traveling, when we're doing things that we don't normally do. So taking a probiotic with you is a good bet. You can give it to your kiddos. Those, uh, the capsules can break apart. You can sprinkle it into yogurt or oatmeal or add it to a drink. This is what I do for Hattie. I put in a little shot glass with a bit of water and she just shoots it down. So head to their website using the link in our show notes. Use code FUNK15 to save 15% off of your order. And local friend, Coyote River Hemp Co. I've known the owner, Ryan, going all the way back to my health food store days over a decade ago. His company is committed to regenerative farming practices. Listen, not all CBD products are created equally, so make sure you are being a savvy consumer when you're purchasing CBD. I highly recommend their Coyote River 500 milligram hemp oil, and you can use that to titrate 
the dose up or down. We always recommend starting low and working your way up slowly over time. You can head to their website and use code FUNK10 to save 10%. That's coyoteriverhempco.com. Um, I will say next week's episode, we're going to, um, talk to Cassie Joy Garcia and she's going to give us some strong meal prep ideas for those of us who just feel so overwhelmed about the thought of having to do one more thing or make one more meal. So I do have, I'm not just here to present solutions. I mean, excuse me. I am. I am. I'm not just here to present problems. I do also want to actively participate and handing you over some solutions, but we have to think about this. It can't just be as simple as, oh, the system sucks. We they're, 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 we do have to kind of disengage from the system if we want the system to change. So let's get into why is food such a problem? These are some big concepts that I, I really think it's so important that we understand. And the, one of the first places to start is that the antigenicity of food has changed. So let's do some vocab real quick. An antigen is anything foreign to the body. So that can be a pathogen, it can be a bacteria, but it can also be a food protein, right? A food protein is foreign to the body. It's coming from the outside world and we're bringing it into our bodies. Antigenicity is a term that looks at how aggressive or how reactive an antigen is. It's how active the immune system is to a protein. And there are certain things that can increase antigenicity or immune reactivity to a food protein. Now, this is not a good thing. High antigenicity of our food is not a good thing. That means our immune system is reacting and responding to it. That's not great. Uh, We don't want our immune systems to be reacting to food proteins. Now, we have to understand that there are multiple contributing factors to why the antigenicity of food is increasing in food processing and manufacturing has a huge role. It's made our foods more immune reactive. Everything from the hybridization of seeds to GMOs to modern food processing have changed our food and changed the protein structures and created new proteins and our immune systems are like, what the actual hell? What in the fresh hell is this? And so that's why we're seeing an explosion of inflammatory conditions more so than ever before. It's like, back in my day, kids didn't have peanut allergies. Right. Back in your day, the food hadn't changed so dynamically. The food, we hadn't gotten so far from the source. And this is why we're seeing it affect younger and younger and younger and younger groups. So food processing... There's lots of chemical agents that are added to food. When we talk to talk about processed food, this is what we're talking about. Uh, these these different chemicals, additives, make foods easier to manufacture and process. Like simple things, like so they're not sticking to the machines, right? To increase their shelf life, to change their texture, to make you know everything like extra razzmatazzy in your mouth. Oh, it's really crunchy or, you know, like, oh, it's soft and chewy. Um, not only are these additives, so they're not actually food, right? They're chemical additives, but they can actually change the protein of the other food ingredients when they bind to them. And anything that can change a protein structure has the potential to make it more antigenic. So think about this. It's like turning you know, turning wheat into goldfish. 
So you have like a whole grain kernel of wheat. And then what are the steps that need to take place to turn that into a goldfish cracker? Because I'll tell you what, goldfish don't actually exist in nature. So you just have to think about all the processing required, all the additives, all the protein changes that must take place in order to get that cracker into a box. So it changes the protein configuration and makes it more antigenic. Then to add insult to injury, we had food coloring. And back episode 116, the problem with food dyes and why you shouldn't buy Kellogg's new waffles. This was, geez, was it a year ago? Maybe more, um, where Kellogg's rolled out like these like unicorn waffles and like mermaid waffles and like walking down the grocery store, any kid would be like, I want that. That seems fun. That seems exciting. It was right around the time Hattie was like super duper obsessed with with unicorns. And I was like, give me a effing break. I was so mad. I was like seeing red. I was like, how how much are we being exploited? And now our kids too. You know, like this makes me really mad. When you can buy food with food coloring, the protein structure changes. So back in the day, I used to love blow pops and blue raspberry. I I would always choose blue anything. Blue freeze pops, ring pops, blow pops, anything. It was always blue. Blue raspberry was my jam. And then your tongue turns blue. You know, that is actually the food coloring binding to your tongue, the proteins on your tongue, right? It's chemicals binding to a protein. And that changes things. The the, the really important thing to understand is that your immune system is not going to react to individual amino acids. So ideally, we're eating, a, we're eating food, we're eating protein, and then we're using our digestive capacity, things we've talked about in the show before, like hydrochloric acid and digestive enzymes. We're breaking protein down into individual amino acids. That's like the end game for proteins. But food coloring doesn't allow proteins to be broken down. And when we cannot break down and properly digest proteins, what happens is rather than present individual amino acids to our immune system at the level of the gut, we're like throwing big chunks of protein at our immune system and be like, good luck with that. I don't, I'm not sure what this is. I, can you, can you handle this? And the immune system's like, mm, not really, not really at all. Can you just give me an amino acid? That's what I'm used to. So the immune system won't react negatively to individual amino acids, but it will react negatively to huge chunks of protein that I can't identify. So food coloring essentially prevents our own enzymes from breaking proteins down into individual amino acids. And what happens is that antibodies can get formed against the protein and that perpetuates an immune response, this ongoing immune reactivity, high inflammatory response. Pesticides can also do this. Pesticides can increase the inflammatory response to foods. And um, there's a lot of different associations between the use of pesticides with with inflammatory conditions. So like the more pesticides have entered into the food system, the more we see these inflammatory and immune uh, system reactivities increasing. And essentially what it boils down to is this concept that you've heard me discuss before, most likely of evolutionary mismatch, where our environment, and that includes our food and our food system, is changing faster than our immune system has been able to adapt, 
our immune system can't really keep up. Our genes haven't altered in the past 75 years, but there's been a significant uptick in chronic illness. So we can't blame genetics for this. We can't say it's the genes. We have to look to the environment. We have to look to our lifestyle. We have to look to our food to understand why our immune systems are freaking out. And they are. They're absolutely freaking out. Crohn's disease has more than tripled from 1950s to the 1990s. MS incidence has doubled in 20 years. The prevalence of asthma, hay fever, and eczema has doubled in school children. Uh, asthma is the most chronic disease in children, and it is just has, has globally increased in children and adolescents. The number of children who have eczema has written, uh, risen. One in five children are now affected by this skin condition. One in five. This is an immune dysfunction. Eczema is an immune dysfunction. And one in five children now have it. We've also seen the prevalence of type 1 diabetes in children growing. I mean, the list goes on. This is absolutely bonkers. Absolutely bonkers. And I don't know if you pay attention to TV commercials, but I, I can't help but notice the uptick in TV commercials for autoimmunity, things like psoriasis, IBD, rheumatoid arthritis. They've absolutely exploded. So we have all these medications, but we don't have cures. There is no cure for autoimmunity. Let me say that again. There is no cure for autoimmunity. Once that process has been set off in your body, it's, it's ongoing. And the medications that are called biologics are 22 times the cost of conventional medicine. This is, these are not inexpensive conditions to manage through pharmaceuticals. A one-year treatment for colitis and Crohn's with uh, Remicade is $50,000. Do I have your attention yet? So this is a big deal. It is... We have to deal with the acute crisis right now, but there are a lot of other big things going on, a lot of other big things going on around us. And autoimmunity as a group, there are more than 100 types of autoimmunity, and they just kind of keep growing and growing. It's more prevalent than cancer, and there's no cure for it. And there's not really a consistent understanding of what causes it. Emmer and Mayer refers to it as bewilderment. I think that is the perfect term. I, I, I read that in his, in his book, Bewilderment. It is like, just like a question mark. And as I've said before, conventional allopathic medicine is really good at saying you have this, but it's not so good at saying, why do you have it? You know, asking, why do you have it? So a root cause medicine approach, absolutely without question, looks to diet as one contributing aspect to autoimmunity. Diet matters here. Right? I just discussed the way, that, the way that our food has changed and our food system has changed and the foods that we're eating has changed and this diet high in processed food, it's, it's causing our immune system to react. When our immune system reacts and reacts and reacts and reacts and sets off this chronic reaction, this chronic inflammation that can lead to autoimmunity. So again, this isn't information that I'm presenting to you to scare you. It's information I'm presenting to you to say, hey, we got to wake up. The time is now. We want to protect our kiddos in the future. We've got some work to do right now, right now. 
And one of the questions that I will often get when people, you know, see like the behind the scenes, like how I eat, how I live my life, how I take care of myself, like, isn't it so hard to do that? Doesn't this take so much work is, is a question that I've gotten from time to time. And now if you're new here, you might not know my health history. So let me sum it up for you. I suffered from digestive issues pretty much my entire life through childhood, through adolescence. Now, part of that was not having words to put to my emotions. So my emotions were oftentimes channeled through my GI system, my gut, which is not uncommon. Little kiddos, you know, will say like, I have a stomach ache instead of saying I'm nervous or I'm upset or I'm sad or I'm worried because they don't necessarily have the emotional intelligence or the language to put to that. And if you were never taught that in your life, life, how to deal with your emotions or having emotions is okay, like most of us weren't, right? Then you can go well into your adulthood, essentially running your emotions through physical symptoms in your body. And, you know, that's a real thing. That's not made up. It's not woo-woo. The more we study the body, the more we understand this to be very true, which is why children who experience trauma or adverse experiences are far more likely to suffer chronic ailments later in life. So that was kind of my bag. Then when I turned 12, I started to restrict my food intake. That was my entry point into a 13-year battle with eating disorders. It started with anorexia, became bulimia. I was binging and purging up to 12 times per day. When I was 16, maybe 15, 16, I started to feel depressed. I was put on antidepressants. Um, At the end of high school, I started to experience joint pain, almost like arthritic type pain in my hands. And and that was most likely due to an undiagnosed gluten sensitivity. Uh, In my early 20s, I started getting debilitating panic attacks daily. Um, You know, sometimes couldn't leave the house. I had to take several medical leave of absence from school because the the panic attacks were so bad. Uh, And then in my very early 30s, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition. So the point is I've been through the ringer and eating well, moving my body, getting good sleep, meditating, taking care of my physical body. It doesn't feel like hard work to me. What feels like hard work is suffering with mental health struggles and physical ailments living in pain, living with low energy, living with extreme fatigue, that feels like hard work to me. That is so much harder for me to live with all that pain than to just like eat, you know, kale and good quality protein every day. So when people tell me that changing your diet feels overwhelming, I actually have a completely different outlook. What is overwhelming to me is to be sick all of the time. That leads to a life that I can't enjoy where I'm like this half-baked version of myself, where I don't get to show up in the way that I want for my family and my friends, where I don't get to show up in the way that I want in my business and my work, where I don't get to help as many people. This podcast wouldn't exist if I didn't take care of myself. I can promise you that. I can promise you that. And I'm not here for that kind of life. I'm here because I want to live the best version of myself. And in order to do that, I have to put in the work to get my health house in order, right? Lay the foundation every single day and then build on that. And this also informs how I parent in in, in terms of food choices, right? Because I want to create that exact same environment for my child. I want her to get to be the best version of herself. And it can be really hard to do that if she's battling chronic ailments. I know this because I live this. So I want to make different choices for her. And the last thing that I want to say here, because I want to tie all this up with a bow, um, I am fully aware that 
there's a lack of access to good food. Food deserts exist, right? Um, eating healthy can feel far more expensive than eating processed foods. Processed foods are designed to be cheap, right? That's by design. The, the foods, the crops that make up processed food are subsidized by our government. It's cheap. It's cheap food. And I want to acknowledge that this conversation is a privileged conversation in that if we have the ability to afford food, if we have access to food, that's a privilege that not everyone is afforded. And as somebody who grew up poor, um, my mother needed to lean on government assistance at certain points to feed us. I'm not a stranger to this concept. And I will be the first one to tell you that it is a broken, rotten system. And also, it is still true that processed foods leads to health problems. We have to allow space for both of these truths to coexist. Processed food creates health problems. And access to healthy food is not a given in our country. And I'm bringing this up. One of the issues that I see when we're having this conversation or, or just stating simple truths, like a diet and high processed food could, can lead to health problems, is that there, there's a bit of a redirect. And I will say that this happens primarily on social media, where all good things happen. It's this, the whataboutism that comes in. Well, what about food deserts? What about poverty? I, I posted a couple of weeks ago about processed food. I shared some stats. And I was waiting for the, the whataboutery. And people did not disappoint. Right? People love to, to, to come out of the woodwork and say, but what about this? And but, but, but. And I, I just want you to think about that as you interface on the social meds. What's your intent? Like, what is the intent of your whataboutery? Are you just there to punch holes? Or are you showing up with a solutions-based approach? One of my responses, my kind of go-to responses when somebody says this is like, okay, I get it. Totally. Totally. You are preaching to the choir. What are you actively doing to change this? If you think the system is rotten and rigged and broken, what are you doing to change it? How are you actively participating in the solution? Because I can tell you what, it is so much easier to show up with a bag full of problems. And it's very, very rare that people are ushering in, showing up with a bag full of solutions. So just think about that. If, if you're somebody who tends towards that, uh, uh, what about, what about this? And what about this? We, we have to get comfortable with holding both truths at the same time. And I think ultimately we're all on the same team here. We're all fighting the same fight. I do want to shout out a couple of local um, organizations that are doing awesome things. Now, this is local to me here in New Hampshire, uh, but gathernewhampshire.org. Uh, they have this uh, awesome thing called Farm Shares for Families, where you can donate farm shares to local families. And so that way you are supporting um, getting farm fresh food and farm produce into the hands of, of folks who need it. There's also another really lovely thing, uh, Grow for Gather. So this is ga through gathernewhampshire.org, Grow for Gather, where you can share produce from your own garden with Gather. And I just, you know, you think about the overabundance of like cukes and tomatoes and zucchini that you get from a home garden. You're like, what the hell do I do with this? They, uh, they have an awesome organization where you can... Um, where you could reach out. Um, the, the head of that, this is per their website, is Emily Gatiss. 
Um, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, but her email is E-G-A-D-D-I-S at gathernewhampshire.org. We'll write that in the show notes for you. So if you're somebody who grows your own food and you would like to donate some of that, such a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. And then um, this might not be like common knowledge, but uh, SNAP, the SNAP program, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, so that was formerly known as food stamps, um, allows recipients to use their EBT card at, um, at farmer's market. So I know that our local farmer's market participates in that and it's a card. So you can, so you can just use your card kind of like a, you know, a debit card and pay at, um, different vendors and get access to, uh, veggies, fruits, meats, dairy products, honeys, breads, all the good things that are at farmer's markets. And if you don't have currently have an EBT card and you need one and you qualify and you need one, um, we will link to uh, our local organization, seacoasteatlocal.org forward slash snap. So you can apply for that. So um, I will say that the one of the biggest uh, obstacles to healthy eating, because I know I just I just create I just gave you a bunch of like this is kind of like pep talk turned into a pep rally like rah 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 here's what we got to do like, like let's you know prioritize our kiddos health and like get them on track and give them a fighting chance and all that kind of stuff. Um, putting that into action is a lot more challenging, right? <laughs> it always is. So um, my goal is to do a few more episodes in uh, providing resources for you too. So next week, we're going to come back on and talk about the time crunch. I know one of the biggest obstacles to providing healthy meals for the fam is cooking and, you know, like the the sort of like decision fatigue that comes like, what do I make for dinner every night? And um, so we're going to come back next week and talk more about that. So please come back, stay tuned. And if any of this information resonates with you, you know, please share, subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review if you find us, uh, find this information helpful. Um, my goal is, like I said, to provide information and provide resources. It's not to scare you or to shame you or to make you feel bad. It's just to say, like, come on, let's like, let's go. We can do this. We can do this together. I love you guys. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.